of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 562. Jason Lindgren is with me and Randy Masters joins us for the first time. Uh, the topic we're going to cover today is actually one of my favorites. And from my point of view, it is one of the things in our world that have been missing. The knowledge of what we're about to talk about has been missing. Uh, I've said for a long time that uh, if you simply try to go look up like the Kaladni plates from cymatics and match a frequency to a geometry, to a color, to a note, this information is not readily available. And at the point where we start to put all this together and recognize that most of what we experience as the physical world is based in vibration, we will probably move forward by leaps and bounds. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a pleasant good morning. All right. Well, Randy has provided some very good notes here, so I think we're going to go out and verbatim. Anyhow, uh, welcome, Randy. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. I've listened to many of your interviews, which I dearly loved, and my partner and I listen, and they're fantastic. And so of all the different people speaking about things, the content and the impeccability of research that you both do and how you present, that's why I feel so honored to be included. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to have you here, and it couldn't be a better topic from my point of view. But anyhow, uh, can you quickly give us a little background on yourself and offer your website out? Um, and if I've understood you properly, you may offer an email address an hour or two. Yes, exactly. I'm happy to do that in that second hour. Thank you very much. Well, I was born in Las Vegas, and my uncle built several of the famous hotels there, including the Sands, the Rat Pack Hotel. So it was an interesting place to come into this earth experience. So I was around entertainment and got, was as a little kid, was taken to the, the floor shows and everything else. <laughs> so it was fun. I, so I played around with uh, the piano. My mom played the piano, and she was a school teacher and very far out but really didn't know what to do with me because when I was born, my right arm was paralyzed in the birth process. So when I play piano, I play with my right forefinger upside down on the nail and my left hand is all over the place. And I've been teaching, I have Grammy Award students and all kinds of things, teaching and playing piano and other instruments, trumpet I started with like in the fourth grade. It was the only instrument I could hold and play left-handed. And there was no real physical limitation. And it turned out to be a leadership instrument and a profound instrument for me. I played with a lot of well-known musicians in my professional career that started in 64. Uh, Tito Puente, Charlie Bird, Cal Jader, lots and lots of people. And I was a music director of the National Band of Ghana, West Africa, in this country called Head Jolly Sounds. They used to be with Hugh Masekela, the trumpet player from South Africa. And I was music director of groups uh, from Brazil and Mexico. I specialized in international music. So when I went to college, I majored in music and film because my goal was to do film scoring, which I've done it too, feature films, but it took another direction, as we'll see, relative to why I'm here uh, and we're here. So I picked up different instruments along the way. So when I was in college, in my senior year, I taught uh, two of the quarters, uh, taught college classes in music. And then after that, I spent another 16 years teaching as an artist in residence and part of the music department and many, many things. And I was very interdisciplinary. So anybody on the college campus that wanted to measure in music, major in music and biology, they would send them to me. So with a BA during all that time, I had got master's and PhD later, but in a whole different area, they would send them to me, even though I just had a BA. So it was my course to do that and be teaching, which I still am now at 74. I'm still cooking away and uh, played and, uh, and composed music. And somewhere in the 70s, being deep in metaphysical studies and spiritual studies, I started getting into the esoterics of uh, architecture and uh, music of the spheres, things, and studying different science researchers and so on. And then I got into sacred geometry deeply in the 80s. And then I also teach that subject as well as different 
aspects of music and so on. So it's kind of a renaissance life, mixing those different forms and doing deep research in all those, all the areas we've talked about, light, sound, geometry, certain areas of the math that pertains to those things. It's very exciting for me. Okay. Well, we've got a lot to get through. And for everybody listening, Randy does have a website. It is universalsong.net. Of course, for membership, we will include a link down in the top of comments, but we're going to jump right in. Uh, Jason, anything you want to add in before I start diving for these bullets? Well, that's quite a background, so I know this is going to be quite interesting. Indeed, well-rounded. So what we're going to do here is we're going to jump into what I consider to be the foundation of our elusive physical world. And elusive is is the right description. And you find it in a lot of old Eastern ideas that this is just a big illusion, but I think it's not in the way most people think. If you jump off cliff, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get killed. That's not an illusion. What is illusory about our world is that everything vibrates and everything changes. And the idea behind the illusory part of what we're about to get into or the roots of why this is true through frequency and vibration is because how can we call a thing real that has no permanence? And since most everything is changing in our world, there are next to no examples of permanence in our world. Although I guess I might offer up gold as an example, and I'm not even sure about that, but compared to everything else, if we use gold as the example, it doesn't rust, it doesn't really change. And you know, with gold, uh, yeah, gold grows, you probably know this, all grows. There have been gold mines that were mined out, and later on, the gold started appearing in in quantities, kind of like with oil. Very interesting. And I, I had met a fellow whose specialty and it was finding gold. And what he found was that the gold area was surrounded by other minerals, sort of like that 12 around one flower of life example. I don't remember the total number of minerals, but they created a field. And then this was his explanation. Inside that field, gold grew. I think that's very interesting. It is interesting. If you try to look up online, how does gold come to be? Uh, you'll get yes. six six different answers and and no resolution. But I want to jump into what we've got here. We got a lot to get through. Your bullets are impeccable here. So let's start at the beginning. How are sound and color related? Well, you know, all using the term vibration and so on and different expressions like photons for light and phonons for sound. What I found very interesting, because I've been taking the wavelengths of color in nanometers or angstroms and dividing them into the speed of light in nanometers or angstroms, and then And then I'll end up with sound way up in the trillions of hertz. And then I'll drop it down maybe 40-some octaves typically, down into about the middle of the piano register or so. And all of the research that I did, all the scientists were always doing that. They would take one or two values of the speed of light, and that's interesting too, and then divide like that and then make that conversion. But I am not convinced totally now after all the years of doing that 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 is necessarily the truth in creation they've just been doing that and i've been doing that as well so to convert any wavelength of sound into the colors and i do that regularly all the time to figure out what things are but at this point i'm not 100 percent convinced that using the speed of light which i don't consider to be a personally a constant uh, and there's a lot behind that and uh, working the relationships in in that way with our visuals, we only see approximately an octave of color unless we've developed some other abilities where we got lots of octaves for sound. I find that very interesting as well. That's an interesting thing that you just mentioned, though. So if you take like if if anyone listening went and looked up the color spectrum from maybe like IR to UV in the center, there's a tiny little sliver Uh, that will be labeled visible light, which is what our eyes can pick up. So you equate that basically with a single octave. Like if you went to a piano, um, how many octaves does a piano typically have? Is it eight? Eight. Yeah. So a piano has eight octaves, I think 88 keys for a full keyboard. That's what I have. Most grand pianos are the 88 key, except for special ones that have more and so on from like 
432 middle A for me to a low 27 hertz A, the lowest note, up to, uh, in my tuning that I'm using, 4,096 hertz for the highest C. That's the range. So if you went to a piano to represent as music what we can see visibly, which you just said was an octave, if you randomly went to the center of the piano and just basically did what? Would it be 12 keys, white and black? That would be one octave. Is that right? Right. Uh-huh. Seven, not counting the octave, but the white keys and five black keys. Yeah, for that type of tuning, you know, not a micro tuning. And there are certainly things that fit in between the notes. So we have to deal a lot by the way the piano was tuned and adapt to that. What you just said is so interesting. I had never considered, you know, thinking about that sliver of visible light as an octave. And it really does go to show you if you take a whole piano keyboard and said at one side was ultraviolet and at one side was infrared, those tiny 12 keys in the center is visible light, what we can see with our eyes. Well, you don't get a one-to-one exactly to sound. You can put a note in any octave you want and still it's called the same name for the note. And you're just taking it up, doubling it by multiplying by two up by octaves or dividing by two to take it down. But light doesn't work that way because when you take a, a wavelength of red light and you divide it in half, a lot of them, you end up with violet light on the other end of the rainbow with green in the middle. And you've only got that one octave. You don't octavize light except that. And when you do, you don't get the same note. You see, I've got a red note that I started with. I cut the wavelength in nanometers in half, like 660 nanometers is a typical red, for instance. And you cut that in half to 330 nanometers. And now we're in the violet and going into UV and that type of thing. You don't get to play around with the octaves like that and still see it. Where in sound, you could take the note, put it as beyond our hearing and below our hearing, like down into delta and the brainwave frequencies. So you mess around with sound by the laws of the octave, but not with light. You end up with a different color. So they behave primarily different in that way. So in sound, if I take, say, just the note A and I double it, it's still an A. It's just an octave higher A. But what you're saying is if I take red and I figure out the frequency and I double the frequency, it's likely not going to be a red when the frequency is doubled. That's right. Or halved. See, when you double it, you're going to go beyond infrared on that end. And when you have the red wavelength, you're turning it uh, within boundary into violet. Wow. Yeah, it's very interesting. And when you send, uh, it's very interesting, when you send sunlight through a quartz prism, you get nine specific colors. Uh, And I've mapped these all out. What are they? Well, you go through the rainbow, but you get two reds, a darker red and a lighter red, and an orange and a yellow. And uh, then you, you get two greens, a lighter green and a darker green. Which is dead center, right? The greens will be yeah. dead center. Okay. Yeah. Well, pretty much. Yeah. The green is is fascinating, especially uh, five twenty eight nanometers is called middle true green, right in the middle of the rainbow, and it goes on up through the different colors of the rainbow. Basically, seven distinctions, but two reds and two greens. That's where we get the nine instead of a seven, which is also interesting when you get into the numerology. And that's working with a quartz prism and sunlight going through the quartz prism. And I've mapped out all the wavelengths of that. And the math is fascinating. But it's interesting because of all the talk about the 528 hertz, and I'm part of the research from that, that that's right in the middle of the rainbow. And in the morning, for instance, when the sun is coming up, the hydrogen molecule in the body is polarized to red during that sunrise. And then In the evening, before and during the sun setting, it's polarized to violet. But all day, 24-7, in the middle, it's green. And supposedly, according to what Fred Bell told me with this work, that when you have jet lag, the hydrogen molecule gets out of polarity. So I, I started making tuning forks and wind chimes to specific colors to help balance that out as an experiment. A red wavelength and a violet wavelength and a green wavelength. Introduced audibly or visibly? In other words, if you're going to deal with jet lag and you're going to recalibrate, 
Do you use sound or do you use light? Both. Fred Bell had a relationship. You, you, you're familiar with him, Dr. And he had Pyridine. I know the name, but I can't claim to be familiar with the work. Yeah, he passed away under unusual circumstances. And I've taught in his classes. And he has a lot of BBS radio shows. I've done several with him. And he would sit in some kind of a chair, lights tuned to wavelengths of hydrogen, which is one of my specialties, in fact. Uh, I've found the musical relationships and the spectral lines of hydrogen and many codes within hydrogen. So I converted those spectral lines. And like in the Balmer series, there's 34 of them, 31 of which are violet, by the way, which is really interesting. And there's a certain math in all of that. And I've converted all of that to different chimes. And when you play them, the sound uh, is almost like hearing whales. I make these like five-eighths-inch aluminum tubes tuned to all of those 34 spectral lines. And everybody that heard it say, what? What's going on here? There's something going on. And I've made lots of chimes with different tunings. But the one that grabbed everybody and stopped them almost in their tracks were these hydrogen lines, hearing them. So one of my business cards said, hear color. That's what I had for like 20-some years. And I'm really into seeing the colors that go with sounds and hearing the sounds that go with different colors, because I believe that our future medicine is that combination of those two aspects of creation. I do too. That's where it's at. So one of my friends who use lasers and they're doctors and such, I asked them what the wavelengths of their lasers are, and I convert that to sound, and I make tuning forks and things for them that match the wavelength of their laser. So Randy, if I was to ask you, Like if I came up with hydrogen and I said, Randy, what color would that be in the spectrum? Do you know these things off the top of your head? Yeah, I've mapped them all out and studied the math of them. Yeah. So what is hydrogen? What color would it be? There's a whole bunch of colors depending on the wavelength. Just in the visible part, like the Balmer series, there's like a red and there's no green in the Balmer series. And like I say, out of 34 spectral lines in that particular series, 31 of them are vi- different shades of violet. That is very, very interesting to me. And there is a red, so we get that part, but there's no green for that part of the middle of the spectrum in that series. There's other series of hydrogen that has a green and things that go through the rainbow. When you study the measured spectral lines uh, of hydrogen, and I do that with a lot of different elements. And so there isn't one color for that. Is it a series of colors that makes up what, I mean, if you were going to correspond a color or a series of color to to make the rough analogy, this represents hydrogen, how would you describe that? Would you say it's these three colors, this color? I mean, how would you describe it? Well, I could could take that part of the ends of the spectrum, like I did the red and the violet and green in the middle, of course, but there's uh, also a cyan blue in, in, in the Bomber series, for instance. And uh, a particular yellow is only a few colors that are different than all the rest are violet in that particular series. So they take the element and they do a burn and they have their spectrometers and they measure the wavelengths that come off of the element. I have the study of the whole periodic table and all the elements and all the spectral emissions. And I've been studying that stuff for a number of years. And I've made some discoveries within that. But it doesn't boil down to one color for that element. Sometimes it's a bunch of different colors. You know, when you think about it, I guess that makes sense. But I want to pull the conversation into the juxtaposition of how we live our lives now with respect to color to how we did when I was young. When I was young, we went to school. We were given some crayons. I took a blue crayon. I took a red crayon. I mixed them together on a piece of construction paper and I got purple. Teacher told me I was going to get purple. And what that did to my young mind was make me realize I've got a whole box of 30 some odd crayons and I started mixing them. Right. Right. So here's here's the next question, because this is not true of computers. When I first started doing artwork using Photoshop on a computer, the first thing that kind of made me stop and say, whoa, was I wanted a color. So in Photoshop, I took a blue, I took a red, but purple I did not get. And that's when everything began to change for me. So your bullet point goes like this. Are light colors different from pigment colors? 
And so I think it relates to exactly what I just said. The main difference being when I put my crayon on construction paper, we are told that that color is being reflected back to my eye and all the rest of them are being absorbed. Now, when I look at a color on my computer screen, we are told that is being projected at me. It's different. And that is a super key point. And by the way, when red and blue with light create scarlet, but violet and yellow create purple. Okay. That's with light. So I spend most of my time working with light rather than the reflected and absorbed colors as we have with pigment. And where it really started bothering me is all the books that come out and give these colors for the chakras, you know, starting with red and moving up through the rainbow. Okay. And then they give a color, a name of a note that goes with it. And they'll say, red is the note C. And you'll find that perhaps other than in science, 90% of the time in any of those different studies. Now, I consider that maybe what that really is, is pigment, not light. For the chakras, when, wait a minute, let me make sure we're on course here. So you're saying for the color of chakras, we're talking about pigment color. Well, that's what I think a lot of the books are saying. Where do they get, I mean, uh, Keeley did something. I never saw his full math, but he had the note C associated with red. And that's not what happens from all the scientists that use the speed of light and divide the wavelength of color into the speed of light. And then they can put it in whatever octaves they want. You get Fs, F sharp, G, maybe into, into G sharps for red. You do not get a C. Cs create a green note. That 528 middle true green note also creates a C note very close to that. Not red at all. But why the hell are they using the speed of light in the first place? That seems like such a random association. Well, I know, exactly. And why, why why not the speed of sound or the speed of something falling or, you know, any, you know, it seems you like such do a that random. Too and you, you get different things that way, too. And I wanted to, I looked at Keeley stuff and I wanted to say, well, why do you say that? How did you, how do you say that the color red produces a note C? Just show me, show me your formula. I didn't find it. Maybe somebody has some Keeley notes out there and I'd like to hear if anybody knows what Keeley used to, to make that statement. And all the New Age books and things also quote C for red and that type of thing. Now, I don't, like I said, I don't consider the speed of light a constant, but that's what almost all the scientists do when you study color and sound in science. You got the speed of light and the and dividing, like I mentioned. So there's something missing. And I, nobody is really talking about what you get from pigments reflecting back something that they aren't. You know what I mean? That is just put a lot of confusion around two of the basics of creation, which bothers me. I agree with you. And I feel like it's kind of like probably related to the Rockefellerization of well, how we, yes, how we lost. Yeah, we, we lost uh, homeopathic medicine. We lost good school books. This to me feels like further obscuring. Like I just, as you were speaking, I quickly just did an internet search and I said, what color is the color or what color is the note C? And so they give me Sam Winder's music wheel and they inform me that it's yellow. This should not be an arguable point, should it? No, it shouldn't. I've never heard anybody give C a yellow. You get a B flats for yellow in this formula that I've been talking, or A sharps, okay? And then when you get a B, you get lemon. You get uh, yellow with green in it for the note B. And depending on where as the B notes in their window creep up to a C, you might get a low C. A lot of people don't know the difference unless they know all the math of what to really call a frequency. But mostly all the C notes are green. And then as they get deeper heading toward the blues, you get some uh, turquoise and, and cyan up in that area, which creates a C-sharp note, using this speed of light thing. And that's what uh, Dinshaw Gaudioli, the famous researcher that used light and toned on the body at specific times in the day on specific parts of the body for a specific duration for a specific condition, okay? We did an episode on Dinshaw, but are you saying Dinshaw didn't use the speed of light, did he? Well... I have notes, and I've studied Dinshaw very, very thoroughly, and I've taken his wavelengths and played with the speed of light with it, and it shows that that's the case. I have all his original frequencies, 
that he got from studying minerals and spectral lines of minerals, which is right in line with what we're talking about, in my opinion. But I'm not sure some of the other parts of his formula, but I took it apart. He wanted to create, a, he had 12 different colors that he used, and he wanted to create a 72 color, and he didn't finish that. And I figured out how to do it and have 100% perfect math in his system. And I told his son, Darius, about that, uh, how to do it. I figured the algorithm for how to create a 72 colors within that Dinshaw system. And he didn't work with sound. He did. He played with it with a little bit of a, an, a quick analysis. But in his work, he wasn't mixing the sound and the lights and the wavelengths. I've done that. I make tuning forks to all the Dinshaw colors based on the actual wavelengths in sound frequencies. So, so wait a minute, right there. How do you do it? Are you using what I, I mean, I, I can't get, I can't get around it. That seems like such a random thing to use the speed of light. And by the way, people are starting to argue about the speed of light. Anyhow, whether there is a limit and all these other things. But my point is, how are you getting the tuning fork to match the visible color in Dinshaw's work? Well, I did use two different speed of light values. Okay. Okay. And the one I more recently use is the 299792458, which you get at 29.9, so on, degrees north latitude for the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid. That exact number complete, that whole number I just quoted, that number is there. We just move the decimal. So it's 29 point and all the rest of those numbers. So I started using that because in the beginning, I thought, well, that's a strange number. And it has odd prime numbers in it, which is another part of the code. I had used before like 300,000 kilometers. And I looked back at all these major scientists who studied and worked with color and light, and all of them were using the speed of light. Babbitt, everybody. I studied all of them to see what, what was going on. And I did not come up with another formula that I could validate that took the speed of light out of the formula. I'm not comfortable now having that in the formula because I don't believe it's a constant, as I said. Does it match direct observation? That would be my whole thing right there. Well, can you use some form of direct observation? Because what we're basically saying is, is we're using math to try to describe a thing. If someone can tell me why in the heck they chose the speed of light, which again is currently being argued, I mean, I'd be interested to hear about that, but there's got to be some kind of a firsthand observation that confirms it, doesn't there? Well, you know, I one of the a part as part of that answer is that I, I looked at what colors and note associations a lot of the famous composers had, Scriab and Beethoven, everybody, you know, who mm. said anything about it. And they did not agree. There were lots of differences in there. My temporary conclusion is that they're looking through their own aura and their minefield and their beliefs. And whatever's going on in their subtle bodies, as they look out, they're going to maybe see the colors differently. So I wanted to see what, what are these composers who were so tuned in. And, and, and especially Scrobin, he had these organs that he had with colored lights on it. He had some of the first light shows with music. Alexander Skryabin, the Russian composer, you know, uh, fantastic. And so I know he's tuned in, but why he just saw that. And, and I'd look at other composers who were way tuned in and they got different colors than Skryabin got. And so I mapped them all out. I go, oh my God, look at this. It couldn't be anything other than looking through different aura fields that we each have and seeing things that are different and not agreeing. Some had some agreements. Variable from point of view? Well, I'm, I'm not sure what the, all the variables were. No I, no, I mean, the experience itself is variable due to the person's perception that's trying to view it. Yes, exactly. And where their beliefs are and how their visual mechanisms and their mind are working together. It's like we see people who can see auras and, and various things like that. A lot of people don't see that what the common tone is, like looking just at the chakras, for instance, is that they're all in electric blue plasma color. And what the chakras are doing, in my experiences, is they're responsible for bringing color into the body and the different bodies, not just the physical body. So it's a transceiver. Color's coming in, color's coming out, 
and the root chakra is responsible from all of them to bring red into the body. But that's not the color of the chakra. And you see that that rainbow thing permeating people in their perceptions and in the charts they've made going back even to ancient times. And the colors don't relate just by half steps and whole steps. The, you know, it's, it's, there's big bands of red and violet. And there's only about 15 degrees of cyan if you plotted it on a circle, the visible spectrum, which I've done. It's only like 15 degrees compared to, I have to look at my chart, maybe 65 degrees or something for red or violet. I think it was red was 65 degrees, a little sliver. They don't work by just simple uh, musical intervals, like moving up a C scale that only has, you know, one half step in it and the others are whole steps. It doesn't work like that. And so it's bothering me because I want to know the truth of how that works. And I'd be greatly happy to get rid of the speed of light in that formula or any value of the speed of light, take that out of it. So would I, I mean, unless it's just my complete ignorance, if someone could explain to me that it's not just a random association, that there's a meaningful reason to do it that way. But again, I'll say it again. In the last 10 years, there have been arguments about what the speed of light is, or if there is a limit, there's, there's all kinds of things that have cropped up around it. But to me, that's bothersome because what you're doing is you're describing a thing with math. Where's the firsthand observation? So when you said to me, you started to talk about the frequency 528, my mind immediately went to the color green and the heart chakra and dead center in the middle of the visible spectrum. That's what I do too. And I think for right now, that's right on for right now. So how could we figure out what is the correct note, the musical note that would most closely correspond with that? And I'm, you know, based on some of the things you've just said, I'm wondering if when we begin to add light in that it's variable based on the perception of the individual. In other words, when I see red, does Jason see the same red that I see? I have often wondered these kinds of things. I'm not sure that that's the case. I don't think you can answer that really, can you? I don't think so. If we got an answer to what we're bandying about here, where one day someone could slap a piece of paper down on the table that says, look, here's the Kaladni cymatic geometry for this frequency. Look, here's the color for this geometry in this frequency. Look, here's the musical note. If we had those three things, the geometry, the musical note, and the color, to me, that would be the biggest boon in the advancement of, I don't know, consciousness or even technology that's been missing for a long, long time. So even if I see... We're studying the three areas of consciousness, of creation, of uh, honoring creation, sound, light, and then the shapes that show up from all of those interactions. Right. Right. We ought to know that as life 101. So if, in fact, I saw a different red, when I look at a color swatch, so it's a very defined color, and I see a different red than Jason does, it wouldn't really matter. Even though his experience is different, we would know that this is the geometry associated with that color, and this is the musical note associated with that color. So even though Jason may see a crimson and I see a darker red or something, it just means that experientially we deal with it slightly different, but the rules are still the rules. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm uncomfortable with this, and I looked at all the different scientists and the physics books, and they're all using that. It's just at the point in history when they stopped using three times 10 to the 17th power or 300,000 kilometers for the speed of light, using that value, which they did in the early days, and then later went to the, you know, 2.9979245 times 10 to the 17th for the speed of light in nanometers per second, you know. Uh, okay, so there's two values, and they're very, very close to each other. And that's all I found from all the different scientists using that conversion. So I, of course, I started doing it. I thought it was correct until a number of years ago, and it really, it bothers me more and more. I think it's been purposefully shuffled aside 
And I think it probably really firmly happened in the same period of time, 20s, 30s, 1920s, 1930s, when our medicine was ruined and our learning, the way we learn in schools was taken over and ruined. And I feel like in the core of my being that what we are talking about to have a legit, provable, demonstrable map that puts together a geometry, a color, and a sound would be a roadmap to amazing, amazing things. And it feels like it's been purposely shuffled and hidden, at least to me. Like, here's an example. I wanted a reference guide of all the Kaladni shapes, geometries that he found back in the day matched to their frequency. You know what I found? I found I could get some partials here and there. Then I found, oh, there's a book. It's not all of them, but it was three grand. Why why is a book three grand? Or Kladni plates that we can, you know, we can make copies to the end of time. And that kind of proves my point. How is it that in this day and age, we don't have a complete cymatics geometry list appropriately matched with their frequencies on minimally a round plate and a square plate? That should be a standard library thing we could look up, don't you think? I know. I've looked at those plates a lot, and I agree with you. And what I've also found, maybe you've seen that, the video of somebody with a certain level of consciousness pronouncing the ohm through a tonoscope yep. attached to the a plate with the sand or on it, and it formed the Sri Yantra. Now, I saw the video, and I knew a couple of people that had it, and one is a very advanced university mathematician, and everybody that saw it, nobody has the video anymore. It disappeared. Ah, uh, see, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. This is key. What we're talking about are like the keys to you know, our physical reality. So like if I'm going to shift a little bit here earlier, you mentioned a, uh, a prism made out of quartz. Yeah. So if I just take a regular glass prism that I can buy for three bucks from China, it's pretty much agreed that there are seven colors in the rainbow that get demonstrated. Do you agree with that? Yeah. That's what you see coming through different prisms. Although one that, uh, Dan winter played with in an article, he had a tetrahedron inside of a dodecahedron where the apexes and the vertices locked in, as you do when you put the platonic forms, I don't call them solids, platonic forms together, they lock a certain way in their nesting. And he got the whole rainbow spectrum and specific angles that would, would create the different colors, whereas the rain, what they call the rainbow angle the 42 degree, basically average, it's about a three degree window. And when you have a raindrop and the light goes through that raindrop and and it's being broken up by the angle. And as soon as it drops out of the 42 degree angle, the primary rainbow disappears. All the amount of moisture still in the air. The sun is where it is or whatever you call the sun. It's shining through all those raindrops and uh, it goes out of this narrow about a three degree window and no more primary rainbow can, is visible anymore. And that, that angle is also encoded in the outward uh, construction of the Great Pyramid between the base diagonal and one of the edges. That angle in there is, is in the Great Pyramid too. So there's something going on with that little slice of an angle to create all these colors. But I want to get some prisms made with a tetrahedron inside a dodecahedron and and check that out and play with that because it's really really interesting how those shapes as a prism break up the light and exactly what wavelengths and exactly what angle was used and they were all famous angles out of the geometry study which i've mapped in exhausting math on it all the angles of tetra all the forms and uh, there were known angles that created specific colors i thought hmm because I always say angels and angels is bringers of light, bringers of information. That's a big part of that to me. I did an episode on that premise that an angel is an angle of the sun. You know, and angels are, are defined sometimes as the thoughts of God. So it would match perfectly with what you're saying if you think of it in that way. Yeah, I, I follow that completely right there, right there with you. Did you want to know the frequency of uh, sound for the 528 hertz? Did you want to know that? Yeah. Well, I did the math using the 299 version of the speed of light, dropped it down 40 octaves, 
516.4 and a ton of decibels, but there's two more zeros, 516.400856, etc., which is still a C. The green wavelength also creates a C note that's very close to the green wavelength. The other colors don't do that. They create really different relationships between the, the name of the note. And by the way, I also, when I'm doing color research, I give musical names to the color wavelengths. So in that rainbow, going through the prism, cyan blue is 486 nanometers, exactly. And that's one of the spectral lines of hydrogen, 486 nanometers. And that's a B note, a particular B note. So I call that wavelength a B note. You follow? Yeah. And then I do all my analysis of light. Well, not necessarily all of it, most of it. Just like I do music, looking at the ratios, looking at the name of the notes, looking at the chords that they form, looking at all of that stuff, overtones, all that stuff, just like I do music. And I feel it should be looked at that way, that the music and sound should be able the same consciousness for both. It's just phonons and photons. I feel like, you know, you mentioned the platonic solids. I feel like that's one of the evidences that demonstrates that people knew the ins and outs of what we're talking about, and what's been lost. If you consider the platonic solids, they go back to the more, not precise, mathematically scientific, maybe more philosophical thinking, right? So you get five shapes. Now they would say the triangle is this color. The cube is this color. By the way, one of them represents earth, air, fire, water, and right. there's even one that. for the universe. And then you get all the angles. In other words, just those five platonic solids, if they did match a color and they did, we know they did, matched it to earth, air, fire, water, and we know they knew the angles, um, that is starting to be the universal keys that we're kind of talking about, isn't it? It would be, but now, like you look at the tetrahedron, most of the time they associate it with red fire for fire in the mind in those associations as they do green for the earth with the hexahedron or the cube, you know, they, and water with the blue and, and all of that type of thing. But there's other forms of fire like blue fire and blue fire in the mind and other things. What would the tetrahedron, why would a tetrahedron even represent a color? It's got a lot of math in it, angles all over the place. When you take apart all different angles inside of a, the platonic tetrahedron, we'll say for now, and there's other tetrahedrons, but that particular one, why would it represent a particular color? Now, I have them made out of crystal and have them cut, you know, like out of different colors of crystals and different kind of crystals. And they're all different kind of colors and they're solid. But how about a tetrahedron? Well, you know, they put, uh, this is related but profound from Stuart Swerdlow's research. They put the Hebrew language, and that relates to the tetrahedron in shape, by the way, into a computer. And what came out was a tetrahedron inside of an octahedron. And he called that, here's the geometry of God mind. I thought that was very interesting hmm. that that came out like that. But what was the color? Well, he uses violet color and you surround yourself with a violet color tetrahedron made out of light, not solid. And then around that, you put a bigger violet light octahedron also made of violet light. And you use that as a protection for yourself or whatever you want to do. But it's very interesting choosing the violet for that, you know, as opposed to these uh, violet was not associated in the ancient teachings with the tetrahedron or the octahedron. So I'm, I'm looking at all those clues. There's something deeper that's so mystified and, and hidden that shouldn't be because it's the basis of creation. I agree. I think it's purposefully been shuffled away like so many things in our world, like the idea of free energy. We've had free energy for so long. Um, now it's starting to come much closer to the surface because of information systems. But every time someone got there, they did away with them. They bought them out. They silenced them. They did whatever they did to prevent that so that they could keep metering and forcing everyone to pay for everything. Well, that's the system that is coming to an end right now. As a matter of fact, I'll make a bold statement. And this is a very bold statement. I have a sense that we're coming to an apex this year in 2024. I could be wrong. There's a very good chance that I'm wrong. 
And yet I feel like we're coming to an apex. I feel like by the time we get to 2025 with all the things that I've experienced and my inner intuition that will be in, for lack of better terms, a new timeline, whether or not all that is true, what are we talking about? We're talking about the system that we live in, that people are fed up with, where the things that we are talking about should be at our fingertips, and yet they are not. They've been obscured. They've been lied about. They've been hidden. And, you know, that is really part and parcel of what's coming to an end in my mind. But anyhow, Jason, I totally bogarted hour one because of the topic. Is there anything you want to get in before we wrap up the first hour here? Well, that almost sounds like you could call that a frequency shift in consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a lot of non-earthly beings call them is an event clock. And certain event has to happen in order for the next event to happen. So I agree with you. I can feel things occurring in 2024 in a lot of areas that I'm involved with. If it got shifted a little, it could be that some other event got delayed for some reason. A lot of reasons for events happening or not happening. And then when, if, if, when that event happens, if it has to happen, then the event clock starts ticking down through the next event. So it could happen in 24. Maybe it's designed to happen in 2024, but there could be an event that somehow gets altered because of consciousness and whatever goes on. And then that event gets delayed because of that. And there's a lot of examples of things like that when we look at history. I'm going to wrap up our one here, but I'll point out another thing. Even time has been screwed with. And most of us in the Western world have been taught to think of time in a linear way. In all of history, every major culture we can look at, it was cyclical. It was cyclical because it was drawn from the sky clock and the sky clock shows us everything is a cycle, you know, even a day, you know, all these things and all these things that have been misrepresented to create the system that we're all sick of that is coming to an end now. So basically we could be controlled and have to pay for everything we do. We want a light. We got to pay for it. We you know, that's basically what's happened. And that's basically what's in the offing as we come. But I'm going to ask you one more time to tell folks your uh, web address, and then I'm going to wrap up and we're going to prep for hour two. Can you give people where they can find you online, please? Yes, thank you very much. It's universalsong, U-N-I-V-E-R-S-A-L-S-O-N-G dot net, universalsong dot net. All right. I think in hour two, Randy is going to offer up his email address, but some of the things we're going to cover in hour two, we're going to touch on Peter Mendel. We're going to talk a little bit about ideas like saints and Christ always being shown in a blue field, always associated with a vesica Pisces. We're going to talk about mathematical relationships. We're going to get into DNA, the chakra system. There's a lot more that we're going to get into in hour two. And again, these are some of my favorite episodes because what we are talking about is foundationally key to the world we have been in compared to the world that we're probably going to be in. Anyhow, that brings hour one to a close. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode and members get access to forums. They can create forums, all the comments, and they get free access to the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon. By the way, Jason and I are hoping we're going to be adding some sun video if things go our way as we come into the spring with a whole new telescopic system. Anyhow, uh, that's going to bring hour one to a close. I hope to see you logged in for hour two so you get the whole thing. We're going to get into a lot of interesting things in hour two. With that, I'd like to wish everybody a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. And we're going to wrap up and we'll be back shortly. There it is, man. Cheers.
is the enemy of knowing. Come.